All right, good evening. Thanks for coming out on this beautiful spring evening. Uh, tonight, we're going to do the second half of Can West Africa Save Us? First, I want to say uh, the class Life Philosophical, the July course is full. Uh, the June course still has some space. You have till April 1st to uh, uh, enroll if you would like to. You can check out my website. Everything is on there. So, But just to note, April 1st is the last day. Um, July class is full. Right, okay, so where we left off last time. So the whole series, a big quick recap. Transvaluation of all values. The world is changing. The values that we've carried with us from the past are proving insufficient to the kind of world that we're inhabiting now and we're likely to inhabit in the future. Hence the title of this series. So I'm not saying so much that we need to find new values or that we should find new values, but I'm saying we are. This is what's going on. This is some of the unease that you feel in the world is the fact that there's this misfit between our lives and the values that we've tended to inherit from our culture. A big part of that, of course, is the technological transformation, social transformation, etc., etc. Here's the key, though. West Africa. Uh, as I mentioned last time, the, the key here is that because of the strangeness of the history of the founding of, of, of the United States, North America, the United States, there was the slave trade that brought a culturally coherent group from a specific geographical location and transplanted them to the United States. That group is one-fifth of the founding population of our country. As I, as, and as I mentioned, a famous book, Albion Seed, talks about the other four-fifths. There were four groups from England, very distinct, and where they settled and the pattern they settled has had a huge influence on how we understand the world, our values, our cultural practices and beliefs. Um, the author, and generally culturally, we tend to forget the other fifth. Now, normally, if, in the way of a cultural history, if you have groups that live together for hundreds of years, in this case, 400 years, they start to mix, they start to mingle, they start to influence each other and bleed into each other. You begin to lose track a certain extent of uh, where the origins are, things get borrowed. The interesting thing in the United States, of course, is because first, for several hundred years of slavery, that intermixing was absolutely outlawed. You could not do this. Miscegenation, of course, illegal. Uh, no freedom of movement, obviously, definition, one of the definitions of slavery. But even besides the legal, and physical impediments, of which there were massive amounts, hence lynchings and beatings and all this was a way to maintain this segregation. You had the cultural biases that were built in. The notion that we don't want to mix with those people, they don't have anything to offer. That their culture, there is no culture there. This is the, one of the big lies that of course we've been told. There is no culture there. There's certainly no culture that we want to draw anything from. And so bizarrely, for a, a history of peoples living together for 400 years, four of these cultures, the original culture, sort of blended and mixed, and the Germans came over later, and the Irish came over later, and, and the, the big melting pot, quote unquote, uh, is established. But one part of that pot did not melt, as it were, because it's absolutely and totally forbidden. Even when you get to the time of the civil rights movement, 
In theory, well, not in theory, in practice, you remove um, most, if not all, legal uh, segregations. And so, so theoretically, we could all mix together and share this, but no, this is not at all what has happened, of course. Today, uh, is great studies out there, if you'd like to look at them, our society is more segregated than it was in this, during the period of the Civil Rights Movement. Our churches are absolutely segregated. Which, is, which really you would think would be the one place where perhaps that wouldn't happen, but they're the most segregated. Our schools are more segregated now than they were when Brown versus Board of Education was passed. Um, so that strong cultural tradition of not mixing has created this interesting, uh, historically, uh, situation where, again, the West African cultural historical modes have survived because they were not allowed to mix. And so you've had this sort of parallel development where one culture, moderately, not totally isolated, of course, which we'll talk about, but strongly isolated against all kinds of prejudice, legals, and otherwise barriers, has developed from a shared root alongside this other larger uh, cultural history that comes from the European tradition via primarily England, but again, later Germany and Ireland and so on. And so we have this tension and much of the greatness of American history has grown from that tension. Uh, uh, James Baldwin, whose picture is here on the, on the uh, flyer, right? one of America's great writers generally, perhaps the greatest essayist America has ever produced, but certainly one of the greatest essayists America has ever produced, is, is specifically, this is, this is his medium, that tension. Faulkner, right, and another great writer, that, his medium is that tension. You know, and so, so much of what we take for as American is in fact this weird interface where this one cultural tradition coming from West Africa has in, tried problematically, violently, successfully intermixed with this other cultural tradition, if you were just sort of the European cultural tradition for, for you know, to generalize. Um, and so, again, can West Africa say this? Is the idea is, can, is there something in this cultural tradition that has developed parallel to the European cultural tradition that might help us as uh, we search for new values, as we begin to relook at the world and go, wow, what we've learned, what we've inherited may not work that well as we go forward. And of course, my, my suggestion is, yeah, this might be a very profitable place to look. There, there is a lot of value there. Um, and so to be specific, any, the, by the way, this isn't just true of, of West Africa, although there's reasons it's specific there. But you're just talking about small-scale, non-grain agriculture. I think that's, if you want to think isolated in one sense, they weren't hunter-gatherers. This is not like, you know, general, as a general rule, it's not that primitive, right? This is a developed culture. They had uh, language and art and poetry and music. They had fairly large-ish communities, but not necessarily large cities. And part of this, of course, is simply a product of the African communities that lived both north and east of the West African communities uh, were more organized and more hierarchical. Therefore, they're the ones that went in and took the slaves. Right? So the less organized, the less centralized you were, the more likely you would be predated on to produce the slave. 
So slave trade was this sort of trading up in the hierarchical scale. And so the slaves were captured from sort of the most vulnerable group, if that makes sense. So they're transplanted to the United States. Again, in normal, I don't know, normal circumstance, if you can say that, generally in history, when you take a group from one place and transplant to the other, they start to mix. They start to intermarry, you get miscegenation. And one way I was thinking about this, how isolated that they've been, is, is the joke that if you have a white parent and a black parent, you're black, right? We don't even have the notion really of Creole or Mestizo. I mean, we don't really have the language that many other cultures have had this experience and they have words that means, oh, you're mixed race. It's a perfect, I mean, it's all over the world because of course we've been mixing together for the entirety of human history. And so many, many cultures have all these gradations and words for all oh, various kinds of mixed race, misheredity, um, sometimes with no ill intention, sometimes with sort of racist overtones and, or very directly racist, but at least they have this concept, oh, that you've mixed. We, it's almost, it's a little bit from the Spanish areas, uh, former Spanish colonial areas, we have a little bit of that because they have a very strong sense of that. But for in America, our tradition is if any mix at all, you are culturally, racially, the other. You are African-American. And so even when we're literally mixing, which is, of course, almost all African-Americans, uh, we don't count it that way. We say, oh, no. And so what this did is create a very strong impulse to cultural homogeneity and uh, c continuity over 400 years that really has no, otherwise it just should not exist. It should not have happened that way. But it did and it has. And so there is this strong cultural friction between, if you want to call the dominant culture, the European culture and the West African culture. And so it just has the features again that are common not just to West Africa, but to most small scale agricultural societies. Uh, one and is that they were not a literate culture when they were conquered. Most of these slaves were taken from cultures that were not literate. They, of course, they had language and poetry and stories and tales and, uh, and song, but they didn't write anything down. What this means is, you know, 400 years later, even though, of course, people are literate now, the culture still maintains a very strong emphasis on orality, speaking clearly. This is not a small issue, by the way. Just to give you a sense of where this goes, uh, I've got my first quote is here from the Phaedrus from Plato. Socrates did not think you should write things down. Socrates was anti-literacy. We, we never think of this because it seems so crazy. But the reason Plato wrote down everything about Socrates is because Socrates did not think you should write things down. It, it's, a, it's, a, it's an important philosophical point that we've lost because we look at literacy and just say, it's a good. It's one of these totally perfect goods. There is no downside. It's all a win. Socrates didn't feel this way at all. So here's a quick passage from the Phaedrus. And he doesn't, by the way, just talk about this in the Phaedrus. He talks about it other places. You know Phaedrus, Phaedrus is a young man he's, he's talking to. You know Phaedrus, writing shares a strange feature with painting. The offspring of painting stand there as if they are alive. 
But if anyone asked them anything, they remained most solemnly silent. The same is true of written words. You'd think they were speaking as if they had some understanding, but if you question anything that has been said because you want to learn more, it continues to signify just that very same thing forever. When it has once been written down, every discourse roams about everywhere, reaching indiscriminately those who are understanding no less than those who have no business with it. And it doesn't know to whom it should speak and to whom it should not. And when it is faulted and attacked unfairly, it always needs its father's support. Alone, it can neither defend itself nor come to its own support. Um, one of the things that he troubled Socrates, that you get the sense of here, is you can't question writing. He goes on to talk about, you know, who wrote this? Is it reliable? Should I trust it? Sometimes, for instance, I know this will be hard to imagine, people will write one thing and do another thing. <laughs> See, this is, this is, I know, hard to believe, isn't it? But it's true, it's true. Uh, and, and this, we, but, and yet, we struggle with this. We struggle mightily with this. Um, it, it, the, the history of, of literacy, in one way, can you, could, you can look at it as the struggle between things that we know, people we know, and pieces of paper. Well, I know this person, but this piece of paper says something, and so I've got to go with the paper. We always, by the way, go with the paper, because we're a literate culture. We believe in the written word. Uh, one might suggest we're insane that way. <laughs> that we've gone so far into our belief in the written word that we basically no longer believe anything people say. If it's not on a document, if it's not written and verified and countersigned, it can't be true. Conversely, something that is written down, we have a hard time disbelieving no matter how preposterous or crazy or outrageous it sounds. It, it, it creates a little bit of mental struggle for us. If you're in a pre-literate culture, the truth of something is vested in the person who's telling it to you. That's where the truth comes from. Your experience and your experience of them if they seem reliable and believable, and you probably know them, and have probably known them their entire life, and they say, the river is dry, there is no water, you probably go, woo, that's pretty bad. Great, I believe you. If somebody else came, who you did not know, and said, the river is dry and there is no water, you'd probably go, I think I'll go look at the river. Because I don't know this person. Why would I believe anything? Oh, they've got it written on a piece of paper. Why the hell does that help? Why does this make any difference? But it does. How many times have you said, oh, please put that in writing. Oh, please repeat that in an email. Oh, please put that in a document and sign it. You can't just say it. That's not enough. Because we have to have a record. If it's on a piece of paper, it's real. If it's not, it's not. We know, right? It's not confusing. We know this, but we've lost track of just what Socrates says. How do you question this? Who stands up for it? How do I know the person who wrote it was trying to say this? How do I interrogate them? I can't. 
And so right there at its core, it questions one of our fundamental beliefs. By the way, this is why it is not all that surprising that African-American cultures continuously throws up great orators and great stand-up comedians. Because it's a culture that puts a very high emphasis on orality, as all pre-literate cultures do. So obviously not pre-literate anymore, hence all the great African-American writers, but still has that extra emphasis that talking, joking, face-to-face -face really matters. Um, second thing is, and we'll get more of this in the next one, is the notion that it is interpersonal. We're so used to large-scale abstract societies that we've almost lost track of the physical, interpersonal, and the real as far as creating values. Let's look at our, our, our second quote here. So this is from Sartre. By the way, I'm, I'm basically going Socrates, existentialism, uh, the entire logical positivist Vienna school, and then post-structuralism, pitted against the West African cultural tradition. It undermines or invalidates so much of our philosophical tradition, it's ridiculous. It really just brings it all into question in, I think, a beautiful and powerful and helpful, often, way. So, Sartre, existentialism. What is meant here by saying that existence precedes essence? This is one of the core elements of, of existentialism. It means, first of all, man exists, turns up, appears on the scene, and only afterwards define himself. If man, as the existentialist conceives him, is indefinable, it is because at first he is nothing. Only afterwards will he be something, and he himself will have made what he will be. Now, in some ways, this is great and liberating, as Sartre meant it to be. On the other side, it's not. So what happened here is there used to be a meaning for existence, and that meaning came from God. And as Nietzsche rightly predicted, once you kill God, what you do is you create this space where God used to be that everybody tries to shove something. If not, you end up with existentialism. What Sartre says is, well, man doesn't have a purpose if he doesn't have God. Therefore, he's born with no direction and no purpose, and he has to create it for himself. Because there is no God, you have no purpose, you have to create it for yourself. This is the existential problem. He saw it as a problem, by the way. Now, this is only a problem if you've had the sort of God that Nietzsche wanted to kill. Another way to think of that is life is its own justification. There is no problem. There is no existential problem if you think life is great. There you go. Why is life good? What's the meaning of life? Life. And life is great. It's not confusing in any way to cultures all over the world. They don't understand this. And if you ask them what's great about kids, they're kids. Why do you want to have kids? Life. Kids, life. Yay. <laughs> Why? Because life is good. Life is a joy. Life is a pleasure. Life is the end of life is life. You're not born without purpose. You are the purpose of life because you're life. For existential, they just cut the whole thing out. Right? They never had a God space that they had to try and fill because it was just filled with life. 
the sort of the, the, this is this is very much the animist tradition, which we'll we'll move on to next. But this notion that look, you don't need a justification for life. That would, it, it would makes no sense in this tradition, in the West African tradition. What are you talking about? What is the purpose or meaning of life? Life is the meaning of life. I mean, look, people are alive. How, what? Well, think in this abstract team. See, remember I mentioned last time, low abstraction. What, do you, what, what are you talking about this abstract sense? No, life, look, be li don't you like being alive? Don't you like the sun and drink water and run? Get married, have kids. Isn't that great? So what's your problem? Again, one more time, because I'm not getting it at all. Right? So this notion of existing without purpose comes from this notion that, oh, we used to have a purpose and it came from God. We got rid of God. Now we have no purpose. The great thing about the West African tradition is it predates that. It's a cultural tradition that never got monotheism. If you had monotheism, you were the Arabic slave traders. You were selling the people who didn't get monotheism. It's, it's, but that was almost a selection criteria. So this tradition doesn't have that first, that great abstraction of the monotheistic God over everything that then gets killed, leaving a big void in your culture. They didn't have that, so they don't feel the void. So they're like, what the hell are you talking about? The existential question just ceases to exist, which is a pretty big hole in 20th century Western philosophy. So then we can move forward. Go. So this is this is uh, David Harvey. It's just the best quote I could find. So this is the Wittgenstein era Vienna school sort of logical positivist logical. This is a huge school covering lots of lots of stuff. But it's a, it's a good quote to work with here. Um, and he says empiricism assumes that objects can be understood independently of observing subjects. Truth is therefore assumed to lie in a world external to the observer whose job is to record and faithfully reflect the attributes of the objects. This logical empiricism is a pragmatic version of that scientific method which goes under the name of logical positivism and is founded in particular in very strict view of language and meaning. So it is part of the foundations of science, and science is great. So it's not anti-science, it's just that we get really carried away with this. Um, and I was trying to, the best example I could think of is, you take a material object, right? One, the separation of the individual and material objects, no, this is not going to fly. But we'll just leave that aside for a second. And go, you have, uh, pick anything, a spoon, a bowl, a, a cup. Let's say you have a cup, you have a teacup. Logically, everything you can do measured about that cup is empirically valid. Great, wonderful. What if you inherited it from your grandmother? It's a totally different cup. For any human being, this is an entirely and completely different cup. It is not a teacup anymore. It's something from grandma. Whatever your associations with grandma are, the teacup is sort of resonant with them. And it's not a linguistic issue. It's an experiential, historical, personal issue. We live in a world so awash with material goods that we tend to even abstract the value of the material itself. 
oh, this is just an abstract thing. It has a value, dollar terms. Or we can measure it, it weighs a pound. Great. If you're in an earlier tradition, everything, virtually everything you have, has history. One, because you don't live in a world awash in a material abundance. You know who made it, you know where it came from, you know how much work went into it, you know how you got it. And again, this is true of lots of early cultures. So it's true in the West African tradition, but even look at one of our own traditions of Beowulf. A lot of the story of Beowulf is about the stuff. Oh, they took that sword from that person back on that day, and that transfers honor to this person and pisses that person off. The value of the sword is not that it's a sword. They had plenty of swords. It's that sword. It has a narrative. It has a story. It has meaning. Personal. Familial. Lineal. Local. And that sort of that imbues things with non-empirical. Different people have totally different experiences of the same object. My teacup is not your teacup if I got mine from my grandmother. And you got yours from your grandmother. Even if they're identical teacups, you'd be, oh, that's hilarious. We got the same teacups. Maybe we have the same grandmother. No, you know, that, that's the, but that, that disassociation from material objects that attempt to make them separate from us. Notice that's the key idea there. Is that it assumes that objects can be understood independently of observing subjects. The cultural traditions of preliterate, low abstraction, low material value culture says no. Objects always carry with them subject-specific meaning. And once you lose the subject-specific meaning, you've essentially destroyed the object. It's, it loses all of its value. So this is, uh, you know, again, to give an, a, another example of this, is the, is the controversy about like Stradivarius violins. Should they be played or not? Or should they be locked up in museums? This is a totally different meaning to something, oh, this is a Stradivarius violin in a museum, versus, oh, they're actually playing it for musical purposes. It's a completely different object. And there's, you, you know, if, and if you don't think so, you've lost your mind. A violin that is played is different than a violin that is locked in a museum case. But no, see, it has to be independent of the subject. So this is about a third of Western philosophical cultural tradition from the last 200 years out the window. Because that direct interface with material objects refutes the, the fundamental premise of this. In fact, it suggests where science has gone wrong very strongly, which we'll talk about. And then next, just for fun, I thought I'd throw in a bit of Derrida here. He's always fun, always fun to try and find a quote from Derrida, because good Lord, it's hard to get, pin him down, which is his whole purpose, is not to be pinned down. So this moment was that in which, look at that phrasing, this moment was that in which, yeah. This moment was that in which language invaded the universal problematic. That in which the absence of a center of or origin, everything became discourse provided. 
we can agree on this word. That is to say, when everything became a system where the central signified, the original transcendental signified, is never absolutely present outside a system of differences. The absence of transcendental signified extends the domain and the interplay of signification ad infinitum. Woo! So what the hell does that mean? Uh, step one, and then step two, why the West African cultural tradition creates problems for that. Uh, what this means is, uh, the, the classic example is the word tree. The word tree points to a tree, but it is not the tree. Uh, and so you can use Baum, the German word for tree. And it, so you have the same tree, but two different words. The words don't matter. But what happens is we lose the actual tree, and you end up, and this is what he means by signification ad infinitum, the endless play of signification. Words stop referring to anything physical, concrete, and real. They just refer to other words, to other words, to other words endlessly. There is no, this is what he means by there's no transcendent signifier, no transcendental signified. We've lost that. He's right, sort of. In a culture like ours that is so incredibly abstracted, this is truish. It's not true in any way whatsoever in a West African cultural tradition which continues to influence the African-American cultural tradition to this day. If you were born in West Africa in a small farming valley, you would know maybe 500 or 1,000 people, maybe 1,500. And let's say there was one river, big river, nearby. You would have a word for that river, probably a name. Maurice. The river's name is Maurice. You do not have the abstract concept river. You only have Maurice. There is no endless play of signification. And if somebody says, oh, I come from... So first you have to meet a stranger, step one, rarish. And then that stranger has to say, hey, I come from a place that has one of those. And the name we use is river. They would go, oh, you have a Maurice, and you call it a river. Okay, there's more than one Maurice in the world. This is an incredibly low level of abstraction. It's not an endless play of signification. You know exactly what you're talking about. You're talking about the river that you've lived next to your entire life. It's not confusing in any way. It's only when you move back and think, oh, we need a name for everything in the world that is river-like, that you begin to get confused. Now, as your world expands, this becomes a problem. And hence, those level of abstractions build up. So it's not to be opposed to having abstractions or having a full world or having complex thought. It's just that we get really, really carried away. And we forget that sometimes, just occasionally, words actually refer to things that we're familiar with. Now, what's amazing is, just to bring this where this problem comes in, companies know this perfectly well corporations in this case. And so they'll take something and build up what they call a brand identity. This means you identify with an abstract concept. So pick any brand, it doesn't matter what it can be. I'll give you one that's currently, there's a class action lawsuit going on. Uh, Corningware Pyrex. Right? 
So they made quality stuff for a long, long, long time, and then they decided to make crap. <laughs> but the word is so closely associated in our minds with the fact that that glass cookware that you can use, that when they changed the formula that they used to make it with so it was cheaper to make, and apparently it started to explode, which is bad for hot glass. Um, and they're saying, oh, of course, no, 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 it's fine. Of course they're going to say this. What are they going to say? Uh, but no, but the word, because it's so trained, oh, Pyrex, oh, Corningware, this is good, overwrites people. So, you know, it takes a lot for us to go, oh, something exploded and sprayed hot glass all over me. Huh, must have been a one-off. Oh, go get some more. Or uh, the car companies do this just on a regular cycle. They build something good, Mercedes, let's say, and then they go, oh, let's make some money. We'll put the Mercedes brand on something crappy. And then it goes, oh, oh, oh that didn't work very well. People realize after a while, after a while, that this is crappy. And they go, oh, oh okay, well, that was a mistake. And we get baffled because the abstraction of the name misleads us about the actual physical experience. Uh, but my, my perhaps favorite example is I once stayed in a, uh, oh, good God, what's the name of that hotel? Fancy hotel. It wasn't the Westin. Something like the Westin. Some four-star nonsensical hotel. Um, and it was all totally about you are at this amazing, expensive, incredible place. Be amazed. And everything in it was crap. I mean, every last thing was crap. And I was at lunch, and I said, oh, I want a cup of tea. They said, oh, yeah. So they brought out lukewarm water, and they had this wooden tea box. And when they opened the wooden tea box, it had Lipton tea bags inside. <laughs> right? And that was, that was a, the entirety of the experience was this, was this notion of, oh, you are going to think it's great because we're going to keep telling you it's great and we're going to use things like wooden tea boxes to tell you it's great while at the same time totally ripping you off. It was, a, it was an extraordinary experience, but it was this level. We've just got lost in these abstractions. Another example, because I like education, because that's my field. Every college will tell you they're excellent. Every school is providing an excellent education for everybody. We are all excellent all the time under all circumstances. Of course, this is impossible. On average, we have to be average. That's the nature of average. That's uh, what the word means. Uh, you cannot have universal excellence for all people under all circumstances all the time. It's just nonsense. But we never track it back to anything. And so we don't know that it's nonsense. Because what does it point to? As Derrida says, it doesn't point to anything. If I can say everything is excellent, what the hell does that mean? It doesn't mean any. It defies the actual meaning of the word itself. And yet we go, oh, okay. Administrators seem to have no problem saying this. They love to say this. I guess, you see, to the point where imagine how it would sound if an administrator said, well, for many students, they'll receive a substandard education because that's the nature of students and bureaucracies. For some students, they'll receive a pretty good education. And for some students, hopefully a, a good number, the fit between our offerings and their aptitude will produce an excellent education. That's our goal. 
yeah, that's not going to fly, right? This is not, this is, it's true, right? I mean, there's no, it's less, less like, it's, it, but we, we don't use language that way. This abstraction, this abstraction, this abstraction, we'll chase it all over the place. So let's run this back and look at some of the challenges we face. So this notion that objects don't have histories or futures or past or present, that they're just an object. One can think about the entire environmental movement as an attempt to rethink that concept. Where did this come from? What got used to make it? Who made it under what circumstances? What happens when I consume it? When I'm done with it, where does it go? Now my object has a history and a future, a past, a present. And I'm asked to judge this, figure this out. This is not new, this is old. This is the old way of doing things. We knew where things came from, we knew how they were made, we knew what we were going to do with them, and we knew what was going to happen to them most likely in the end. But it's new to ask this, right? Fair trade coffee. Under what circumstances was it produced? Was it sprayed with poison? Am I destroying some piece of the earth someplace else so I can have coffee here? I don't want to think that. I want to think my coffee is helping somebody someplace else so that they can live a decent life and I can have good coffee. I want that narrative. We're starting to really want that narrative. It's a huge battle because we've been told our culture tells us no. Our culture tells us what the logical positivists tell us. An object has no subjective subjectivity to it. That's all just nonsense. We've got to get to what can be held outside of the subject. Again, assumes the object can be understood independently of the observing subjects, which is to say, I can't judge the object. It's the only those things that any subjects all over the place could agree on about it. Oh, is it coffee? Yeah, we could probably all agree it's coffee. But a lot of people just don't care. A lot of people drink folders. There you go. What are you going to do with them? Uh, you know, but a lot of people don't care how it's produced, where it comes from. You know, is it farmed salmon? Who cares if it destroys the sound? We don't have a history of fish anymore. If you look back to the, the tri tribal traditions, West African traditions again, they had a history of every animal they ate. They had a story, a narrative, a tale, a poem, a song. They, they, they knew where it came from. They talked about it. They were intimately intertwined with it. We've abstracted ourselves from this, both abstraction and an attempt to remove ourselves from this. So again, one way to think of certainly environmental consumption movement is an attempt to put stories back into our lives an attempt to revisit what we used to have. Another part of the existentialism, moving back one again to the existentialist movement. The existentialist movement requires a dead world. So another example that Sartre gives is he says, material world is made, it exists, and it's given purpose by man. That example he uses is a knife. 
you look at a knife or a fork and it has a use. You can look at it and figure it out. But it's not a thing in itself. This has deanimated the world. The world is dead. The only living things in the world are us. And we have to abstract ourselves of it, as the empiricists have told us, so that we can make correct judgments. The other tradition, the older tradition, is no, 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 the world is alive. Everything, everything has life in it. And if you don't see it and feel it and interact with it, you're a very sick person and you need help. And that, that notion that, oh, the, the way something is produced influences the way I can consume it and the way I can experience, again, gives life to that thing, gives it a history, gives it a story, makes it a subject. Of course, this is the animist tradition. But the animist tradition doesn't necessarily mean you have to have this you know, uh, overarching spiritual sense of the world, although you can have that too. It just means you don't view the material world as dead because, of course, it's not. It's transforming. This, this, the, this is the great thing about science. It tells us this. The, plant, the continents used to all be together. And now they're all... The planet is on the move. It's living. It's moving. It's transforming. We, we've decided we want to freeze it and take all that life and transformation and possibility out of it and pretend like, oh, it's fixed and real, and this is how it is. No history, no present, no future. It's just now, just how I want it to be. And again, it's, it's, it's not even, it's like I said, this is, the animist spiritual tradition says no, but also the scientific tradition is like, look, no, that's just not accurate. The sun is using up its fuel, the universe is expanding and changing shape, the planet is vibrating and rotating, and all this stuff is going on. And we don't want, we basically don't want to think about that. Because we've been told we don't, shouldn't, we don't need to think about it. We have other better things to think about. More interesting abstractions to ponder. Um, and then backing up again, one, two, back to Socrates. Uh, or Plato, writing down Socrates. Um, Alcibiades. Everything comes back to the symposium, by the way. I hate to say it. If you study philosophy, it all comes back to the symposium. Um, Alcibiades in the symposium shows up. And Alcibiades is famously the, the, the great bon vivant. Wealthy, handsome, intelligent, powerful, noble family, of course, all the money, all that. And uh, Socrates drives him mad. He says, the only person that makes me feel like I'm not living right is you, Socrates. And it always goes back to the interpersonal. And again, if you look at the African-American tradition, on average, of course, this is this, this, is this parallel. This, they tend to be more interpersonal, more strongly local, more regional. Uh, by the way, partly because they were forced to be. This is not necessarily by choice, but again, it's, if, you, if you're not allowed to integrate, you have to stay together. You have to stay in a neighborhood if they won't let you move to any other neighborhoods. Which is a way of reinforcing this cultural tradition that was there to begin with. So what, one of the great stories in American history is the mass migration of African Americans from the South to the industrial cities of the North. Um, but they tended to move in groups, traditionally family groups. 
And so they established new neighborhoods, which is totally perfectly understandable, both under the social pressures, but also under the cultural traditions. That you want to be local, you want to be individually focused, you want to know the people you're around, you want to have those connections. Um, and so Alcibiades looks at Socrates and says, with random people, I'm great. With you, I know you and you know me. I'm not so good. And that vexes me. That vexes me. And I think this is what vexes us. People say, what's wrong with living in a small town? Well, everybody knows you. This is the lament of Alcibiades. Socrates knows me. I don't want people to know me. I want to be someplace where I can be anonymous. I would argue this is a disease. This is a poison. Uh, and, and with the decline in life expectancy in the United States, uh, I would say you can literally say this is killing people. We've been told it's better to be someplace where people can't judge me, look down on me, tell me I'm bad. On one hand, that makes perfect sense. On the other hand, it's the recipe for psychological and emotional and personal isolation on an unbelievable scale. We don't have to work out our problems, we just move. Freedom, great. We may be pushing it a little too far. This is the issue. It's not that freedom of movement is not a great thing, it's that you shouldn't just pursue it because you have freedom of movement. The, the classic is, it's not just your car, it's your freedom. This is like one of the most bizarre yet powerful concepts ever evoked. You can just get up and go. If anybody's read the On the Road novels, uh, you know, classics of American literature, what you have there is the story of poisoned sick people searching for some place. They're on the move. They're on the go. They want to find, and they never do. The, only the motion gives them relief. And so they're, they're looking, they're looking, they're looking. Which is great. It's important to look and to search. But at some point you need to find. Right? And we've sort of adopted half of that. The, well, let's go. Let's move. Let's get on the march. And so... This is what I'm, what, what my argument is, is, if we look to this amazing sort of powerful gift that our culture has inherited, which is this other culture. This tradition that is both older and has run parallel with us, that can give us insights. How do African American communities build and maintain viable communities in the face of every possible problem? Whatever the problem is, in theory, the African-American community has it worse. And yet, famously, the, the neighborhoods are good. People like to live in the neighborhoods. They, they, they are loath to move out of the neighborhoods. Richard White, James Baldwin, they write about this. Moved out of Harlem. To what? To nothing. Want to go back to Harlem. Because that was both bad and good. But it was, the culture was there. Life was there. 
to look at that and find how do you do that? How do you build, how do you build those cultures that are viable, sustainable, long-term, life-affirming? Moving from place to place to place is one way not to do that. Well, here's a culture because, again, the tradition is there. How do they do that? Two part, and part of this is, again, the individual has to matter. Right? The, the, the notion that you will be judged based on you and who knows you. It's very personal, very individual, but also very judgmental. That's, it's, it's, it's almost like a slider. But this is a culture, if the more personal, the more interpersonal it is, the more familial and familiar it is, then the more accepting it can be, but again, also more judging. There's a huge sort of gathering uh, in the South every year. They call it, not that's one of them, but it's like a big uh, radio music, R&B producer, radio hosts, and they call it a family reunion. Thousands, this is thousands of people. This is not a few. Basically the entire R&B community goes. But I like the notion that they call it a family reunion because this is the theory. The R&B community is a family. It's built between interpersonal connections. But notice it's not a genetic family. It's not a family of birth. It's a family of choice and of achievement. And so it's this interesting model of saying, it's not your literal family, but we're still maintaining this notion of family. And you see this in all kinds of institutions that come from the African-American community. If you look at the history of jazz music, these bands often function as these extended families. They weren't just musicians. They were taking care of each other. The same people switched to other bands. They married each other. They promoted people's different careers at different times. And it, so they had this sense of, they call it the jazz community for the longest time. A community built through personal relationship and excellence and self-judgment and mutual affection that was sustainable and productive and inspirational, obviously, um, that wasn't built just on the sense of, oh, I have to be an individual on my own. I have to be me. I have to be free. I mean, in some ways, jazz music is such a great metaphor for this because you're playing within a group, but you're also playing your solo within a group and your solo in a group. Right? It's, it's this fascinating dynamic that... I, uh, it's, it's almost, as far as I can tell, somewhat unique in, in musical history. It's not one conductor. It's not people playing sheet music. And there is music, but that's only a guideline. We have composers, but we don't necessarily listen to them. <laughs> we're playing as a group, but everybody's free to do whatever they want, as long as they don't mess up what we're doing as a group. You know, that sort of mutual shared, but raising everybody up, but letting everybody be them, 
See, it was an interesting cultural dynamic. This, by the way, is the old system. If you live in a valley with 1,500 people and you're all relying on each other to survive, you've got to make it work. We want to have a place for you because we need you to be in a place that you can thrive. And so that sort of process gives us models, not from far away, not from distant in time, but from right here. One-fifth of our founding fathers, a huge swath of the cultural tradition of our own country, gives us these other models. And then finally think about abstraction. Right? Again, how do you get over this just unbelievable just ocean of abstraction that we, that we live in? This is, this is always like this, that, uh, particularly like the hip-hop musicians always get mocked for this. Oh, they buy huge gold jewelry and they buy jets and then they go bankrupt. Don't they know what money is for? Ah, we know what money is for. It's for savings. We have a lot when we're dead. <laughs> right? That's what money is for. Read the investment guys. They all tell you the same thing. Which makes more sense? Right? That if you don't believe in the abstraction of money, you want something concrete you can feel now. Biggest gold chain you can get your hands on. Because it's real. And I can feel it. And it looks good when I go out. No, 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 no. I, I want, see, we don't want, we're not supposed to do that. It's a waste of money. That's not a good investment. You've got to put your money to work for you. Put it into an electronically traded fund run by an artificial intelligence. So you can get 3% return marginal investment after tax. And it's like, what the hell are we talking about? I think it's better to get drunk and buy a gold chain, personally. <laughs> I mean, really, let's be frank. Uh, you know, this is, this is it's, it's, it's madness. No, we, to believe in the abstraction of money is to forget that, the, you know, and I just use money as an example because like the greatest abstraction of all time, uh, is, is to forget that it's supposed to do something. It's, it's not, it's, 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 it's an abstraction, great. It can do a lot of stuff, so do something with it. And often what we find, unfortunately, is that it doesn't do the things we want it to do. For instance, make us happy, fill us with joy, remove our fears, assuage us in the long watches of the night. No, it doesn't work like that. Music probably work a lot better. And so when we, as, as we look through this transformation of values, like I said, which is going on, I just think that a valuable place to look is the one place I think we're absolutely not going to look as a culture. I'm almost certain of this. Is to the African-American community and this heritage that they carry in our own cultural tradition. That's the thing. It is blended. It does overlap. It is there. We've been together for 400 years, but we've been pretending like we're not. That's the key. We pretend like they're not there, right? That's, the, that's how you make this magic work. But now that things are not working so well, that we're feeling disease, that we're feeling the ground shift from under us, here's another set of values to look at. Another way of viewing the world, one that goes back much further 
than the Judeo-Christian ethic. I mean much further. And the magic of it is, through the just bizarre patterns of history, is it's been transported and brought to us here now. This is almost unbelievable. It's like a science fiction novel. Our past, our lost past, our lost heritage, we're all from Africa. By the way, this is not a race thing. Good Lord, are we wrong about race. It's not a race thing, it's a cultural thing. It's our lost genetic and cultural heritage from 10,000 years ago, at the dawn of agriculture. Many of those influences have been transported and kept alive here through the vagaries of history and slavery, segregation. And we have the opportunity to, at the very least, look at that and go, wow, what is there of value that we can incorporate as we move forward? And I would argue, because we're facing this big challenge to our values, a lot, and I mean a lot. And, and it, when you start looking at this, you find people like James Baldwin, who, who care, I mean, the list is, is, is infinite. I mean, you just there's so much that's there already, just waiting. But we tend not to think about that way. We don't think that Miles Davis is as great as Beethoven because I can never figure out why. He's as great as Beethoven. Let's just face it. He's as great as Mozart. He's just that great. There should be statues to him. The house he was born in should be a national historical monument. Presidents should go there to speak once a year. You know. But no, not yet. Right? Not yet. But maybe, maybe. As we go through this value transformation, we will eventually go, right, here's a place where we can really look at the African-American community and the West African cultural tradition to, to, to come with a new synthesis that helps us in the future. Thank you.